This meeting is being recorded. Okay, let me just mute everybody and let's go on. Okay, this is Ashir Ilu Nishmasom, Ephraim Shmuel Ben Avramaria Cohen, and Chaya Tovabas Eliezer Mendel Cohen on the book of Yechezkel. And we are at the start of chapter six, I believe. Um, we had an introduction. I don't know how long that went on for, at least a year. Um, but this this chapter is all about uh, idol worship, about Zorah, paganism, and all the things that go with it. And uh, it's really a continuation of chapter five, a little bit dark, uh, maybe not as dark as chapter five itself, but certainly it's got its dark bits in it. Um, so we'll start off with the first two verses uh, in chapter six. Yechezkel tells us that uh, he had prophecy from God. God said to him, Ben Odom, direct your face towards the mountains of Israel and prophesy to them. Um, very strange um, language, as we'll discover. Um, so after the dark imagery of chapter 5, which we spent a lot of time on discussing the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, God now tells Yechezkel via prophecy uh, in this chapter more details of how the suffering that's uh, going to take place in Yehuda and particularly in Yerushalayim uh, will take shape. And he tells him, Simponechel Hori Yisrael, turn west away from Babylonia, back towards Yerushalayim and the mountains there. So why the mountains? So the Abarinel says, Hori Yisrael, what are the mountains of Israel? As we know, Yerushalayim is surrounded by hills, surrounded by small mountains, and um, uh, the base of Migdash itself is built on a mountain. Built on a mountain, Ben Kaseifov Shochein. It's described as it's built uh, between two shoulders, two mountains there, and one in the centre is where the base of Migdash is built. Kamashikosov Yish Yerushalayim Horim Sobivlov. That's Dovin Amelach, when he conquered Yushalayim, described it Yushalayim Horim Sovivla. When you look at Yushalayim from a distance, it looks like a city that is surrounded by hills, surrounded by mountains. So Yechezkel is told to turn towards Yushalayim, Vehinovei Aleyhem, and uh, to address his prophecy to the mountains. Um, and the reason for the mountains, ostensibly and superficially, uh, is because this chapter, as I said right at the start, is all about the Zorah, it's all about paganism, it's all about idol worship. And the practice of idol worship was performed mainly, uh, almost exclusively, on the mountains and hills of Yerushalayim, um, where the various pagan altars and rituals were performed. And um, what's interesting, it all, all dates back to the time of Shlomo Melech. Because Shlomo Melech was unfortunately the first uh, individual to bring these types of uh, altars, pagan altars and idols into the area around Yerushalayim when he married all these pagan women. And they came, but they wanted to bring their idols with them. And he allowed them to do so. It wasn't until approximately 350 years later that they were removed. And despite the fact that they were many righteous kings after Shlomo Melech, including the great Asa and Uziyahu and Yotam and Chizkiyahu. These were great uh, kings of uh, the southern kingdom. None of them bothered to remove all the idols that were on the hills around Yerushalayim. It was left eventually to uh, Yoshiyahu. Somebody we're discussing now, those that uh, learn Sophania with me, the book of Sophania with me, now that that deals with the period of King Yoshiohu, and he was the one, he was the tzaddik that finally destroyed all the idols around Yerushalayim. But uh, idol worship, and specifically worship of the Baal, and worship of uh, areas of a mountain, and the trees that grew on the mountain, these were all things that were performed on mountaintops. So Yechezkel is told to 
direct his prophecy to the mountains. And what should he say? Ve'omarito, verse 3. Ve'omarito, hore Yisrael, shimur devar Hashem alakim. He should say, mountains of Israel, listen to the words of God. Hashem alakim, in the language of God, as a, a purveyor of justice. Ko'amar Hashem alakim. This is the word of God. To the mountains, to the hills, to the creeks, and to the valleys. Hineni ani. Behold, I, mevi alechem cherev. I'm going to bring upon you the sword. The ibadati bomosechem. And I'm going to destroy your high places. Bomosechem is a a language of high places, but uh, in Tanakh it means altars, uh, pagan altars. Uh, and uh, Originally there was a, a rule when the Jews first came into the land of Israel before the base of Migdosh and before um, uh, the establishment of Shiloh uh, as a central uh, place of the Mishkan, people were allowed to bring sacrifices in their own back garden or on bombas, on uh, their own particular, their own private altars. After the establishment of Shiloh, that was banned. And uh, certainly after Yerushalayim was, and the base of Middish was dedicated, they became uh, obsolete. And they were mainly used after that for idol worship. And so God says, Hinini Ani, these, these words are very, very important. Hinini Ani, maybe Alechem Cherev, Ibadati I'm going to destroy all these altars, all these pagan temples, everything you've built on these mountains is going to be destroyed. Now, ostensibly, um, this verse is really just a more detailed qualification uh, and extension of the previous verse, verse 2. Uh, in the previous verse, God tells Yechazkel to prophesy to the mountains of Israel, um, the places where they placed and worship their Abode Zorah, their, their idols. And here Yechazkel describes and fleshes out exactly what God is going to do to these shrines. Uh, and the Jews uh, are also going to suffer with the sword. Um, and that's for replicating the pagan lifestyle of their neighbors. Um, so just like the pagans uh, in the neighboring countries built their altars on mountaintops, on hills, and we'll see later in the chapter in valleys as well for particular reasons. Um, and uh, here... The, the essence of what's going to go on here is not just that the bombos themselves, the altars are going to be destroyed, but also the practitioners, the worshippers, those that worship the Baal and all the other uh, idols that uh, are prevalent in the land of Israel. And there were a lot of them, uh, Moloch and Malcolm and uh, Ashtaroth and uh, Atzei Asherah. They, they had a multitude of... Um, uh, pagan worship was going on in in the countryside of Yehuda, and God says, "I'm going to get rid of it all, and I'm going to get rid of all the uh, practitioners as well." As the, the Barabbanel points out, he says, uh, "It was the their minhak, their minhag, the minhag of Yerushalayim was to practice idol worship on the mountains, on the high mountains, but like Vos." Uh, and on the, the hills and under uh, by every fresh tree um, that was watered by streams and also in the valleys. Therefore, Yecheskel is prophesying regarding these mountains and the altars upon them. Uh, and the bigger altars, which were communal altars, uh, as we'll see later, also the incense altars and the uh, altars to the sun god. They used to worship the sun as well and the moon. We, we can't really understand this because to us, the idea of worshipping a statue is just, you know, doesn't make any sense. And we'll, we'll come on to that a little bit later. But uh, this is the prophecy that all these altars, the personal altars, the communal altars, the altars that they used to offer incense on, which are called chamonim, and, and chamonim are also uh, uh, idols uh, to the uh, 
to the sun, to the sun god, these were all built on mountains. They'll be completely destroyed. And says the Abarabanel, and all the worshippers, all the worshippers will suffer the same fate as the idols and the altars themselves. And this is what Yechezkel is saying. This language that Yechezkel is using, these are the words of God, they're expressions of speed of destruction. In other words, you should read it, God, so to speak, is on the job already. Like he's not holding back. Like this isn't going to take a, a lot of time. Mora ala mahirus. That any mora shetehei gezeira melchon of Yisparach velo mifas amaracho. And uh, the idea here of hinini oni, uh, me God, indicates the devastating speed with which these idols and these worshippers will be destroyed, will be wiped out, um, and not in a slower, gradual rate of destruction you would normally expect from a military campaign conducted by a human army of invasion. So it's he's telling him that uh, the destruction of all these uh, idols that uh, you've built around Yerushalayim after the death of Yoshio, they're all going to be destroyed and all the worshippers are going to be destroyed and it's going to be done so quickly that no one will be able to say it was through natural causes. It's going to be... Uh, Quick fire. Because God will bring upon these mountains of pagan idols and their worshippers, the sword of the enemy, in such a way, in such a high, at such a high speed, that the normal gradual stages of one nation conquering another will be replaced by a miraculously quick destructive process. So... Um, that is ostensibly and superficially uh, what this verse is all about. But, uh, of course, we're in Yechezkel, and Yechezkel is very deep. And there's a much deeper message in this verse regarding the mountains. Um, and I'm going to deal with it uh, in various stages here. Um, we've got a tradition, uh, the tradition of Judaism, says that our forefathers and foremothers, Avram Yitzvah and Yaakov, Sorah, Rivka, Rochev, are referred to as our mountains and our hills. There's a posik in Devorim, um, chapter, 13, chapter 33, verse, verse 15, where it says, where it's in the parish of Zosabrocha, and in the parish of Zosabrocha, Moshe Rabbeinu is giving um, uh, brochas to the tribes, and he writes, And with the crops of the early mountains and the sweetness of the perennial hills. So he's talking about the tribe of, um, um, uh, he's talking about the tribe of Yosef and uh, the commentary, the, the Medrash, the Sifri on Devorim in section Shin Nun Gimel 353 describes what this, uh, a deeper meaning to these, uh, the idea of the early mountains. Who are the early mountains? Harare Kedem, the early mountains are Avram, Yitzchok, and Yaakov, the three forefathers. When we make it give us along, who are the sweetness of the perennial hills? That refers to the four Imahot, the four mothers of Israel, Sora, Rivka, Rochav, Leah. And uh, if that isn't enough, uh, evidence that uh, we refer to the forefathers and foremothers as uh, in terms of being mountains, Bilom refers to them as uh, as uh, as Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, Sorich, as being mountains and hills as well. And uh, if you remember, Bilom has been uh, contracted to curse the Jews. He's unable to do so and he ends up blessing them. And he writes, is part of his prophecy in Bamidbar, in chapter 23, verse 9, uh, for, from the beginning, I see them as mountain peaks, and I perceive them as hills, 
Hain Om Levadod Yishko. They produced a nation that will dwell alone, Uvagoyim Lo Yishashov, and uh, will not be counted among the other nations. So all the other com- all the commentaries there, including Rashi, um, comment on this prophecy of Bilam as follows. That uh, Bilam says, that I perceive, I see the mountain peaks, and I see, I behold the hills, I'm looking at the roots of Israel. That's what Bilam is telling uh, is telling you in this prophecy. But and I see them, you sodim. And I see the foundations are like mountains and hills. The foundations of the Jewish people are like mountains and hills. Because of their ovos, because of their forefathers and their foremothers, who are compared to mountains and hills respectively. This nation stands alone. This is the legacy. The legacy of the Jewish people comes from their forefathers and foremothers. For them to dwell alone. And he, the Rashi quotes the Targum, that the nation that is alone is destined to inherit the world. And uh, that is the prophecy of Bilal. But uh, he's explaining to Bullock, listen, he can't do anything with these Jews because they stand alone. They're, uh, they're as powerful as mountains. Their foundations are the mountains that are the forefathers. And therefore, they can't be destroyed. And eventually, they'll, they'll inherit the, the earth. Finally, the Gemara picks up on this. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah and Dapir Aleph makes it very clear that the expression here, the mountains and the hills, is a reference to our forefathers and foremothers. So the Gemara says over there, how do we know that the term Eitan, Eitan, which is a proper name in Hebrew, which uh, means mighty, the mighty one. The Gemara says, how do we know that the word Eitan denotes might or a mighty person? So the Gemara says, as Bilam says about Israel, Strong, Eitan, is your dwelling place, and you put your nest in a rock. In other words, uh, the rocks of the forefathers. We come from the nest in the mountain. The nest in the mountain is the nest of our forefathers and foremothers. Then the Gemara says, to prove the point, Shimu quotes the Apostle from Micha, those who have learned Micha with me will recognize the Apostle. Shimu Horim es Riv Hashem. Hero mountains, God's quarrel, God's vikuach, uh, God's debate. And your strong etanim, your strong foundations, your strong mountains uh, are the foundations of the earth. And the Gemara says again, this verse is a reference to the patriarchs and matriarchs. As it says in Shir Hashirim, in chapter 2, verse 8, Kol dodi hinezebo, the voice of my beloved, this is God speaking, the voice of my beloved, hinezebo, be- behold, he comes, medaleg alahorim, makapets alagavos, leaping upon the mountains and skipping upon the hills. And the Gemara says, medaleg alahorim, what does it mean that the my beloved comes leaping on the mountains? means that the redemption will arrive early in the merit of the patriarchs, who are called Horim, mountains. And Makapet Alagvaz, skipping on the hills, means that the redemption will also come in the merit of the matriarchs, who are called Gvaot, Gvaz, hills. And um, therefore there is, in this verse, a deep message from God to the Jews of Yehuda. Uh, in 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 calling upon Yechezkel to prophesy to the mountains of Israel. The mountains of Israel are not just the rocks, the actual rocks that surround Yerushalayim, but we're talking here about the Avot, we're talking about the patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel. And this is the message, this is the deeper message. You Jews are supposed to be a family. 
And as such, you're required to follow in the footsteps of your ancestors, the patriarchs and the matriarchs, the mountains and the hills, living a life based on their ideals, their values, and their morals, their principles and their beliefs, and their mode of behavior. And uh, again, this, this is something that is consistent throughout Tanakh, and uh, the prophet almost points this out in the third chapter, where he writes as follows, Shimu listen to this word, that God has spoken about you, B'nai Yisrael, the people of Israel. I'll call Hamishpocha Asher Leisa Meyeretz Mitzrayim Leimar about the entire family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, and uh, forget the prophecy for a second, but the the intimation from the prophet Amos is that the Jewish people are a family, and we're called many things. Uh, we're coming to Parshas Bolok soon, and Parshas Bolok, uh, uh, right at the start of Parshas Bolok. Uh, we see something very interesting that uh, Bollock, he's not sure what the Jewish people are. It says in Parashas Bollock, Vaya Bollock ben Yisrael First he calls them Yisrael, a people, uh, the Israelites. Um, then he calls them Ho'om, and uh, that they're a people. And then he calls them a kahal, a congregation. Like he's not sure how really to define the Jewish people. He, are, are they a nation, a nation of a regular nation of, uh, you know, people born into uh, the same country, the same language? Are they national? Is there a national uh, 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 essence to these Jews? Are they an arm? Are they a people? In other words, are they... Um, are they uh, a, a, a nation that's been thrown together? Are they a kahal? Are they just a community? Or, uh, but the real answer is what Amos is saying. They're a mishpacha. The Jewish people are a family. We all descend from the same ancestry. And uh, when we look at the posit from Amos, that Shimo Estevar Hazar Shed Yiber Hashem Aleicha B'nei Yisrael, the message is, I'll call him Mishpacha Asher Lisa Meretz Mitzrayim Leimar. God's telling Amos that everything involving the Jews throughout their history is a family issue. And that family issues involve certain dynamics that are required to keep a family together. Uh, together. There has to be in the behavior of the Jewish people a reference to the three Avot, the three patriarchs, and the four uh, Imahot, the mountains and the hills. Uh, and that God will always compare and contrast the behavior of the current crop of Jews to the seven originals. Uh, the Jews are supposed to resemble these great ancestors. And when they don't, God will ask the question, where's the spiritual gen- genetics that should have pa- been passed down to all of you from them? Because you are a mishpacha, you are a family. And uh, as a family, you're supposed to look to your ancestors and understand the way to behave. Um, this verse is pointing out in stark terms that the Jews living in Yehuda at this time have not lived up to the ideals, to the values, to the morals, to the principles, and to the beliefs, and to the mode of behavior of the three patriarchs and the three matriarchs, the mountain and the hills. And so God's message is stark. Um, you, Yecheskel, tell the Jews regarding the patriarchs, the three patriarchs and the three matriarchs, the mountains and the hills. I, God, am going to bring the sword of destruction to you because you abandoned the way of the Avot and the Imahot, the mountains and the hills, and replaced it with idol worship. You can no longer rely on the protection of the mountains. That's what God is saying to Yechezkel in this verse. Turn to the mountains of Israel and speak to them. Everything's going to be destroyed because you can no longer rely on the foundations. You don't behave like the matriarchs and the patriarchs, and therefore you don't deserve 
the protection of the matriarchs and the patriarchs of the mountains and the hills. You can no longer rely on the protection that up until now has been provided to you by the merits of your antecedents, by the merits of Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, Sororifka, Rochavalea. I, God, am going to destroy the perversion of the destiny you inherited from your ancestors. The Ibadati Bomosechem. And that's what it means, the Ibadati Bomosechem. I'm going to destroy your high places. But uh, the mountains of Yushalayim are supposed to remind you of your responsibility to behave in exactly the same way as, as your antecedents, as the patriots and the matriarchs. Now that you haven't done that, the protection that they afforded you throughout history is over. And uh, that is the subliminal message here, or a deeper message here, that is contained in this verse. Because, let me just get this verse up on my screen. Ah. Yeah. Excuse me for one second while I get this up on my screen. Yeah, the Omarita Hore Yisrael Shimu Devar Hashem. That um, God says to Yecheskel to turn to the mountains. That uh, it's because you can no longer rely on the mountains to protect you that all this destruction is going to come upon you. So that is a deeper understanding of the words, the prophecy that Yechezkel is getting here. Um, but we have to understand uh, the dynamic, how does the dynamic of protection afforded to the Jewish people by the forefathers and the foremothers, um, work? And when does it lapse, or how did it lapse? After all, don't we say in davening three times a day in the Amida that God is the Zocher Chastelvos? This is in the first brocha of the Shemona Esra, which we say three day, three times a day. Uh, that God remembers the chesed of the forefathers, including the foremothers as well. It just, it's a colloquial term for the patriarchs and the matriarchs. And as a result of that, he brings geula, he brings redemption to their children, to their descendants, because he promised to do so with love. And the quite correct way... Uh, not this not sheer on the Shemona Esrei, but so the correct way of understanding these words from the Shemona Esra is this, uh, God who remembers, who views us, who views the Jewish people through the prism represented by the piety, the kindness, and the upright behavior of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, meaning, so to speak, that God is uh, so to speak, prepared to overlook our shortcomings based on who our ancestors were, and consequently, constantly, through history, constantly through history, has brings and has brought redemption to their descendants. For the sake of his name, meaning based on the promises that God made to the uh, patriarchs and matriarchs, the mountains and the hills. And this kindness God does for us, with love. So, um, what type of behavior by the Jewish people can set aside this promise that we say, we still say it. We still say it every day, three times a day in the Amida. It doesn't mean that God forgets, God forbid, that uh, about uh, the behavior of the uh, forefathers. Zohar doesn't mean in this context just remembering. Of course, God remembers. God remembers everything. But is a representation of God remembers with the intention of protection. That um, we are we we are protected through the prism. Um, God looks at us through the prism represented by our forefathers, and even though we perform, we're not performing so well. We're still afforded protection. So the question that is raised by many commentators here, if that's the the way I've explained this verse, that uh, Yechezkel is is told to. Uh, 
prophesy about the mountains, that the mountains will offer you no more protection because the sword is coming to these mountains, then uh, what's, what's going on with the Shema Nashra that we say every day? Why do we keep saying it? So um, the Gemara deals with this issue, and uh, the Gemara in Shabbos, on page 55, makes the following uh, observation. When did the, uh, the protection, because of the merits of the forefathers and the matriarchs and the patriarchs, expire? Like, when, when, when did we lose the protection um, that was based on the performance of the matriarchs and the patriarchs? So, when was it lost? Like, uh, clearly, you see the base of Middush, the first base of Middush was destroyed, the second base of Middush was destroyed, and uh, we've been in exile ever since. So, at some point, the Gemara asked me, at what point did, could we, were we forced uh, uh, that we couldn't rely on the merits of our forefathers to protect us? So the Gemara says, From the time of the prophet Hoshea, uh, Hoshea ben Be'eri was a prophet in the northern kingdom who prophesied in approximately the year uh, he was, uh, his years are uh, approximately 550, 555 uh, BCE, he prophesied in the Northern Kingdom. And it says by him in chapter 2 of Hosea, And now, says uh, Hosea, quoting God, I will, re- I will reveal Israel's disgrace before the eyes of her lovers. Uh, the lovers there refer to the idols, the Avodah uh, Zorah, the pagan uh, structures that they built. The Ishlo Yodi, and no man shall save her from my hand. What does it mean? No man will save Israel from God's wrath, from God's anger. So um, this this prophecy, as I said, this prophecy was said in about the year 555 BCE, and Israel. Uh, Hosea saying Israel will no longer be saved by the merit of the patriarchs. Uh, so uh, the Ben Yehoyod asks the question, how do we know that the word Ish um, means the patriarchs? The, the Posuk says that uh, I will reveal Israel's disgrace before the eyes of her lovers, before the eyes of her idols, before the eyes of her pagan beliefs. The ish loy and no man shall save her from my hand. So the implication there from the Gemara is that the word ish implies the patriarchs. No man, no ish, no none of the patriarchs will be able to save the Jewish people from the suffering that's going to come to them. Lo ish Not even the patriarchs will be able to save them from the trouble, the, the suffering, the destructions that's coming their way. So the Ben Yoyod asks, well, how, how do you know the word Ish implies, how does the Gemara know that the word Ish implies the patriarchs? So the Ben Yoyod says like this, the Ish lo yatsilanim yodi, nirali b'tziyata dishmaya, it appears to me with the help of heaven, the word Ish, Aleph, the word, the letter, the first letter, the word Ish is Aleph, refers to Avraham. Um, the second letter is a Yud, refers to Yitzchok. The Shin, the Shin refers to Yaakov. Why does the Shin refer to Yaakov? Sheyeshlo Gimel Shemos, because Yaakov had three names. Sheroshe Teva Shalahen Yudin. And uh, the first letter of all three of his names began with a Yud. And um, his names were Yisrael, Yaakov and Yeshurun. But Elohim Shalosha Yudin Shal Shin. And these are the three Yudin, these are the three Yuds that sit on top of the letter Shin. So um, if you want to see it now, what he's trying to um, uh, tell us here, uh, I'm going to share, share a screen with you for a second. You'll see something weird. Um, share the screen. 
there you are. That is, uh, everybody see that? That is a shin as it appears in the, that is a shin as it appears in the uh, Sefer Torah. Uh, as the shin in the Sefer Torah contains three yudin on top of the letter shin. One yud represents Yaakov, one yud represents, the middle yud represents Israel, and the third yud represents Yishurim, by Yibishurim Melech, Bishasev Rosheol. So those are the three names of Yaakov, and they appear on the top of a shin. So the word Ish represents, Ish lo yatsileni miyodi, no man will res- be able to rescue you from my hand. The Aleph of the word Ish is Abraham, the Yud of the word Ish is Yitzchak, and the Shin of the word Ish represents the three names of Yaakov. Um, Yaakov, Yisrael, and Yishurim, the three Yudin that sit on the top of the letter Shin. So he said, that's, that's at that point in history. I'll stop the share now. If anybody wants a copy of that, they can just ask me, I'll send it to them. I'm stopping the share now. Um, I'm going back to the text. Um, so uh, the, the Gemara basically says that uh, from the time, uh, about 140 years, 130 years before the destruction of the first base of Migdosh, the, uh, the Tamar Zuchus Avos, we were no longer able to rely on, on the protection of uh, the Avot. In other words, every sin that we did was going to result in some type of punishment. Up until that time, all the sins we did, so to speak, were deflected, deflected by or reflected or refracted by the prism of our forefathers. After that point, we had to pay the price. And uh, that's the Gomorrah and Shabbos. And that's a very frightening Gomorrah. Um, and uh, although it seems to answer the question, that that's what's going to happen now. That's Yechezkel. He's looking at the mountains and he's saying, you know, the mountains are not going to protect you now. Avam Yitzchok and Yaakov, Sorif, Gorokhov, Aleh are not going to protect you now because the sword is coming to the mountains. You are the descendants of the mountains and the sword's coming for you. Um, so it's a very frightening Gomorrah. And it's a very frightening imagery that Yechezkel is projecting here. Um, but the Gomorrah itself, raises a very, very serious question. And that is this. If the Zuchut Avot, the merit of the, of the forefathers, and uh, by extension, the merit of the matriarchs as well, the foremothers, uh, has been used up, so to speak, and no longer protect us, why do we continue to mention the Avot and summon their Zuchuyot in all our prayers? Like three times a day. Again, we say, with Zohar Chastei Avos, the shield of Abraham. So why do we continue to say it? Like if it's all been used up already, so like what's the point? Well, we can't rely on it, so why even mention it? So this is a question that's raised by Tosus in that Gomorrah and Shabbos. Um, and uh, I'm not going to go through the old Tosus, but Tosus there quotes Rabbeinu Tam, the father of the Balitosvus, who answers that the Gomorrah means that the Sukhus Avot, the merits of the forefathers, is finished. And we can't, uh, via their merits, we cannot arouse divine protection anymore. And pro- that would provide help and security uh, the way it used to. However, says Rabbeinu Tan, the Brit Avot, the covenant, the promise that God made to the forefathers and foremothers, to the matriarchs and the patriarchs, is still intact. He says there are two issues at stake here. There's the zuchut avot, the merits of the the, uh, patriarchs and matriarchs, which we can't rely on to protect us. But having said all that, we've still got the brit avot, the bris avot, the covenant, the promise that God made to the forefathers. That is still intact. And it has to be intact forever because God himself signed on to it. The Brit Avot is the covenant and promise that God made with the Avot, whereby he assured them that no matter what happens, their their descendants, their children will never be destroyed totally. And uh, that is uh, uh, implied 
in many places in the Torah, but most specifically in a verse in Devorim, in chapter 4, verse 31, where the Torah tells us, Ki el rachum Hashem God is a merciful God. Lo God will never let you fail or will never allow you to be destroyed. Neither will he forget. He will never forget the covenant, the promise he made to your forefathers, which he swore to them. So that that is, you know, it's an open potter in the Torah. So there are two issues at stake here. There's the Zuchot Avot, the merits of the forefathers, which extended and protected the Jewish people for a very long period of time, up until just before the exile of the ten tribes from the northern kingdom. But from that point, just before that event, when the Jews, the ten tribes, ten northern tribes were thrown out, and so far never to have returned, from that point onwards, we can no longer uh, rely on protection based on the merits of the patriarchs and matriarchs. What we do still have in our pockets, and why we still do say in the Shemona Esra, that God, so to speak, does remember the chesed of the avos, in the sense that the... um we're reminding God that the bris, the, the covenant, the promise he made to us that we'll never be destroyed and he'll never forget the promise he made to us. So that's what we're mentioning in the uh, Shemona Esra. Not specifically the Zuchut Avot, the protection that the Avot afforded to us, but the promise that even though we're going to be suffering, even though we're going to, you know, the base of Middash is going to be destroyed, and we're going to go into exile, and we're going to be in exile for a long period, and we're going to be persecuted, and there's going to be holocausts along the way, and there's going to be terrible massacres along the way. Lo The Jewish people will never be destroyed. So there are these two issues uh, playing out in Jewish history. Uh, there's the Chut Avot, which we could rely on until about two and a half thousand years ago. And following that, the only thing, well, not the only thing, the, the thing that we rely on today and have relied on for two and a half thousand years is the protection, the uh, lesser protection, so to speak, from God, that we can never be destroyed. We can be punished, we can be exiled, we can suffer terrible tragedy, but we'll never be destroyed like all the other nations, all the other ancient nations and uh, or persecutors of Israel have been destroyed outright uh, throughout our history. Um, and that any any protection that we might be able to rely on um, is, um, is dependent on certain factors. And if we want protection, if we want to reinstitute the Zuchut Avot, if we really want to uh, reinstitute the protection based on the protection that we get from the mountains and the hills, from the Avram Yitzchok and Yaakov, from Sora Rivka Rochel Valea, then that's dependent on certain factors. And this is something that Rav Soloveitchik explains in great detail. And I'll just give you the um, the um, the short. It's not the short, but uh, it's a very very important issue. Um, that uh, as I mentioned, there are two things. There's the Zuchut Avot which we can no longer rely on. And there's a Brit Avot, the promise of never being destroyed, which we still can rely on. The Rav Soloveitchik asks the question, what's the difference between the Zuchut Avot and the Brit Avot? So I'm just going to um, paraphrase what Rav Soloveitchik said and put it in, so to speak, into contemporary terms. Imagine there's two friends. This is the analogy. Imagine there's two friends. There's one friend is called George, and he's mortal. And he's got a friend called Ringo. Um, but the difference between the two of them is, whereas George is mortal, Ringo is immortal. And they're best friends. And they do everything together. But unfortunately, George, as a mortal, starts to get old and realizes he's going to die soon. So before he dies, he speaks to his, but he calls in his best friend, Ringo, uh, who is immortal. And he says to Ringo, listen, do me a favor. After I die, please look out for my kids. 
So Ringo says, of course I will. So you're my best friend. So George dies and Ringo takes care of his kids and he treats them like his own. Ringo does the same for George's grandkids and great-grandchildren. And uh, as the generations progress, the flavor of the the original relationship between George and Ringo is obviously diluted. George's great-great-great-grandchildren are less like the original George than his first generation of children were. And so the immortal Ringo feels much much less of a a bond or obligation to them. That is, says Rob Soloveitchik, the Zuchus Avos. The more like the original George the descendants are, the more attached the immortal Ringo feels to them, and the more he looks out for them and vice versa. The less like the original George the descendants are, the less attached the immortal Ringo feels to them, and the less he looks out for them. But if the immortal Ringo has signed a document agreeing to guarantee that all George's bloodline is preserved, then resemblance to the original George becomes irrelevant. And that's what's going on here. We have a bris, we've got a signed document for certain things, specifically that will never be destroyed. But if he, in the analogy Ringo, or out of the analogy, or we're talking about God, uh, in this analogy, is not bound to prevent us from suffering, only to prevent the genealogical line of George, the genealogical line of Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, of being wiped out totally. And uh, as Rav Soloveitchik said, the prophets tell us that we are family, as we mentioned. We, we mentioned the, the Bosak from Micha, that we're Mishpocha. We're a Mishpocha. We were taken out of Egypt as a Mishpocha, as a family, together with God. And he's the father. And we had a bris avot and a zuchut avot. The zuchut we can't draw from anymore. Because like in the analogy to George and Ringo, we don't really resemble the avos, avot, the behavior of the avot enough to get those benefits. Like Ringo, you know, the less like George, the descendants, the less like George that his descendants are, the less responsible Ringo feels about protecting them. He'll, he'll make sure they don't die. He'll make sure they won't be destroyed. Um, because he signed a, a document to that effect. But uh, as they diverge from the original George, then he feels less, you know, responsible to protect them from uh, any trouble that might come their way. Similarly, God, who made a deal with Avram, God is the Ringo Kabiochel in this story. And Avram Avinu is the the George. And uh, the agreement was the as long as the descendants resemble Avram, so God won't only provide, just won't only make sure they're not destroyed, but it'll provide protection for them. But now, at this point in history, in the year 429 BCE, when the Jewish people are worshipping idols, and they could, they're as far from being like Avram Avinu as they could possibly be, so God feels no responsibility to uh, institute the Zuchut Avot. He, they, they don't resemble his original friend, Abraham, anymore. But he's still required by contract, the contract that he, that he signed, uh, and the contract that will last forever, um, to ensure that the Jewish people survive. He's not required to make sure the Jewish people don't suffer. Uh, and the bottom line is, we'll always be here for sure. But the punishment we have to endure um, and the re- reward that we are entitled to are very much governed by our, our own behavior. And uh, the more we become like Abraham again, and Yitzchak and Yaakov and Sora and Rivka and Rochavalea, so if we start to become like them again, so God will reinstitute the Zuchutavot. God will provide the ultimate uh, protection for us at every turn. Because, that, as we said, uh, the more we resemble uh, the original George, the more re- we resemble the original Avram, the more likely Ringo or God is to provide complete and utter protection. 
but the punishment we have to endure and the reward we are entitled to are very much governed by our behavior. And that's what Amos, Amos says when we, oh, it was Amos, not Micha, but that's what Amos said in the verse we quoted earlier. I'll call What does that verse mean? In our context here in Yecheskel, it means this. If you Jews could find a way to revert to the ways of Abraham, Yitzchot, Yaakov, Sorah, Rivka, Rochel, and Leah, the mountains and the hills, then I, God, will return to the Zuchot Avot. And the way you will be treated will be the way I treated the Avot, uh, on the basis that your behavior, behavior resembles theirs. Then you'll get the double benefit of Zuchot Avot, you'll get protection, and the Brit Avot. And the promise will still be intact, the written guarantee that's from the Torah, that you'll never be destroyed. But while you treat the leharim, the ligvaos, which is the words used in this verse, once you abuse uh, the um, uh, the heritage that you inherited from the forefathers, from the mountains and the hills, the patriots and the matriarchs, and you you don't look anything like them, and you don't resemble them in any way, shape, or form, while you cast aside the tradition that you got from these people, the original hills and mountains, the foundations of Judaism, and you swap them in favor of paganism, then you can no longer rely on that protection of the Zuchut Avot. And the result is not total destruction, but rather, as he, God tells Yechezkel in this pasuk here, Hinani Ani, I, God, will bring upon you the sword and I will destroy your pagan altars together with, as the Ravanel points out, all those who worship the Avodah all those who worship the idols as well on the mountains, like a chutzpah. Like the mountains represent Avram, Yitzchok, and Yaakov, the foundations of Judaism. And you use that representation in the physical world to act in a way that is completely contradictory to everything that Avram Yitzchok and Yaakov and Sororifka and Rochavalea stood for. So that is a, you know, a very deep understanding of what's going on in this posture. But, um, you know, we haven't hit rock bottom here yet. We, there's still somewhere to, some, some way to go. Um, in understanding and even even maybe even a deeper level um, of what's going on in this verse, um, which what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it next time because this is uh, no maybe I'll start it now. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll say over part of it now and I'll finish it next week. So that is everybody with me so far. I mean, this is a, a very very deep. Um, in my opinion, a very, very deep, uh, uh, in-depth uh, analysis of what's going on in this posse here with Yechezkel, and what the mountains represent, and what we can expect, and what we can't expect uh, from God in terms of the Zchutavot and in terms of the Britavot. These two completely different things. Um, if there's no questions, I'll um, I'll just move on slightly. Um, furthermore, the idea of Yechezkel being told to prophesy to the mountains of Israel, uh, as he says, Yisrael, You, Yechezkel, should say to the mountains, mountains of Israel, listen to the word of God, is indicative of the fact that some of the greatest miracles, this is taking it even a little bit deeper, some of the greatest miracles in Jewish history took place on mountains. And that a mountain is and should be a reminder to the Jews um, of all times, and uh, certainly uh, the time of the destruction of the base of Migdosh, you know, it's 2,500 years closer to Mat and Torah, to the time of uh, the Exodus. And, um, and uh, Jews had already experienced uh, miracles taking place on mountains, that the mountain is and should be a reminder to the Jews of the times of the first base of Mikdash, and certainly to um, uh, to Jews of all generations, that God saved them on mountains. 
and now the people are using those mountains to worship got uh, other gods pagan gods idols uh just to name a few mount moriah is reminds us haraha maria reminds us of the akeda and the, the site of the base of Migdash. mount sinai is where the torah was given mount carmel is where elio hanavi performed the miracle when his sacrifice was accepted and the prophets of baal were killed the mountains are always the resting place uh, oh sorry the mountains are also the resting place of moshe and ara um Rabbi Yudah Levi recalls in the famous kina, uh, famous eulogy or kina, I don't know what the English word for kina is, um, not eulogy, it's a um, lament, in, we say it on Tisha B'av, the all the lamentations, the kinot. So number 36 is written by Rabbi Yudah Levi, and it's very famous, the words are very famous, Sion Halo Tishali. Um, which is uh, a very long poem, but everybody knows the words, Zion, hello to Shali, that is my request, to re- like the return to Zion. And in the 15th stanza, uh, the 15th uh, line of that poem, he writes the following words, Har ha'ivorim v'har ha'har, the har of Avorim and the har ha'har, the mountain of mountains, ashom shnei orim gedolim marich, the Har Ha'ivorim and the Har Ha'har, where the two lights reside, who lit up the world and taught you about God. So what, what are these two mountains? So Har Ha'ivorim refers to Mount Navo, uh, where Moshe Rabbeinu is buried, which is a pasuk in Devorim. Devorim chapter 32, verse 30, 30, 49. It says, God commanded Moshe, Allah el har ha'ivorim, hazer har navo. Climb up to this mountain. You told him to climb up to har ha'ivorim, which is uh, called har navo. And there he can see from the top of the mountain, the land of Israel without, uh, he didn't have permission to enter, but he got a chance to see it. And that's where he died. And the har ha'har refers to the mountaintop where Aaron was buried. Also mentioned in the Torah in Bamidbar, chapter 33, verse 38, Vayal Aaron HaKohen El Hor HaHor Al Pi Hashem Vayom HaShem that he, kept, he, he, he uh, climbed the mountain. He was together with Moshe Rabbeinu and, and his son, Elozo, and he died there. So uh, mountains have got a special resonance with the Jewish people. And uh, I just gave you a few examples, Haram Haram Maria, Har Choreb, Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel, Har Hahar, Har Navo. Uh, there's loads of others. Mount Hermon um, is also mentioned in the, in the Tanakh as being a place of miracles. Um, uh, Har Tavor is a place of miracles. Har Gilboa uh, is mentioned in the book of Shmuel. So mountains, when it comes to mountains, so that should be a reminder to the Jewish people of things that God has done for the Jewish people on mountains, miracles that God has performed on mountaintops. And yet the Jewish people, you know, so that's where the Dafka there, Dafka there, that's where they decide they're going to worship idols, on mountains, a place where uh, that should be reminding them at all times of places that God performed miracles and uh, in terms of Harah Maria, which was the place of the Akeda and the site of the base of Migdosh, the ultimate mountain, really, the holiest place on the planet. And yet this is this is the Jewish people. This is the Jewish people in Yehuda at the time we're talking about. They're using these mountains that uh, on the one hand should remind them of the patriarchs and matriarchs, and on the other hand should remind them also of all the miracles that God performed for the Jewish people on mountaintops. And yet this is the place, Dafka. The Jewish people are a Dafka people. Amkishay Oreb. This is the uh, Dafka, the place where they decide to worship their idols. So it's not surprising that in this verse, um, God, so to speak, is telling uh, Yechezkel to look at the mountains. Look what the Jews are doing to the mountains. And uh, God's having a sense of humor failure. And uh, he says, you know, time, you've had enough time. 
You've had enough time to 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 change your ways. And I'm going to bring the sword to the mountain. Um, and we're not finished with this yet, but um, it's time to stop. Um, and if anybody's got any questions, oh, so there is a question here, uh, or a, a statement maybe. Erwin writes, but uh, this doesn't allow us to understand why the great Sadiqim, whose traits uh, followed the traditions of our forefathers, became martyrs. So you know what's very interesting? So uh, we spoke about suffering in the last uh, two uh, shiurim, and I gave you, you know, uh, some some um, reasons why suffering happens in, in this world. And... Um, and uh, it wasn't exhaustive because we, we didn't have time to go through an exhaustive list. But one of the things I missed out was this, that the world is set up in a particular way. And um, the, there are, so to speak, natural consequences for certain actions. So we know, for example, it makes no difference whether you are, you know, the Russia Shiva Ponovich or, you know, some, uh, some pagan from um, Bali. If you put your finger in the fire, the fire is going to, your, your, your finger is going to get burnt. No question about that. It's just the way the world is set up. The way the world, the way that God has set the world up is that way. It makes no difference who you are. If you put your finger in the fire, so you, your finger gets burnt. It makes no difference whether you're Chaim Kanievsky, Livrocha, or some, you know, uh, drug addict uh, kid uh, living on the streets of Manhattan. It makes no difference. And that's also one of the reasons why people suffer, which I didn't go into because it's it's a deep idea and it needs a lot of uh, um, depth to it, which I haven't got time to deal with now. But the reality is um, the, the world has to run on some type of cause and effect. And uh, if if X happens, then Y will be if, if X is a cause, then Y will be the effect. And. Uh, uh, under certain circumstances, that's what's that's what's happened. It's not necessarily that the tzaddikim uh, uh, deserve to be destroyed in the Holocaust, or deserve to be destroyed in the destruction of the first base of Middash, or deserve to be destroyed in the destruction of the second base of Middash. But there are rules and uh, uh, and uh, so to speak natural rules in place in this world that if X happens, then Y will be the result. And uh, uh, again, it's very hard to take, but um, again, the the example is, you know, you put your finger in the fire, you're going to get burnt, no matter who, it doesn't matter who you are. And um, the Jewish people uh, committed uh, certain Averas, and they were warned about it. And as a result of that, they put their finger in the fire, and, um, you know, their, their fingers got burnt. And that's just the way of the world. So I know that's not... Um, that's not what people want to hear, but um, and uh, certainly we're in the book of Tzfania at the moment in the Kolel Shir, and this is something that Tzfania is going to make very clear to the Jewish people, that uh, Tzadik Varosha makes no difference. When the Mashkis, when God releases the uh, destroyer to Yerushalayim, so the, the Balachamovist doesn't care. The fire doesn't care who it's burning. The Malachamovist doesn't care who he's killing. Malachamovist is there to kill people. Right, He's, he doesn't ask questions whether you're Tzadik, whether you're Rosha. God releases him in, inside Yerushalayim. So, as uh, the Gemara and Shabbos, which we're going to deal with later on, so you know, he just goes and kills who, whoever's in his way, and uh, you know, uh, Yerushalayim's on fire and everybody gets burnt. Uh, as the Barabanel points out in Spania, we haven't done that that part in Spania yet. But the Barabanel points it out. He says it's just a sad fact of life that. Um, this is the way of the world, so to speak. God can intercept. God, God can uh, make exceptions, of course. But the reality is that in the normal course of events, uh, certain actions of certain consequences, certain, certain times the consequences appear to be irrational, unfair, uh, going against God's own rules of justice. Uh, but the reality is that... Uh, you put your finger in the fire, so it gets burnt. And when the mashkis is released, when the destroyer is released inside Yerushalayim, the Malachamavis doesn't care who he kills. And uh, again, it's a very hard... Uh, and that's another reason why some people suffer. Because, you know, wrong place, wrong time. And um, <laughs> I know that sounds uh, very un-Jewish, 
but uh, it's a point so far, a, a profit makes. So uh, we have to take it seriously. Um, anyway, we're not finished with this issue yet. Uh, we're not finished with this posset yet. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll complete this posset, um, uh, verse three, uh, in this chapter next week, please God. And, um, and then we'll move on to the, uh, you know, the dark message that's, that's seeping out of this chapter. Um, uh, and again, the chapter revolves around paganism. This chapter is all about paganism, all about idol worship. Um, so if there's any questions, now's the time. Um, if not, then I'll say, uh, how'd you say it in French? How'd you say it in French, Harvey? I just say oh, au revoir. Au revoir, bonsoir. Au revoir, bonsoir. Au revoir. And okay. I hope you enjoyed the share and I uh, hope you join us next week. I hope you have a great week. Welcome back. And oh, thank you. And uh, I'll see you, please God, next week. Hopefully, with a, you know, eventually, eventually the darkness will lift from the book of Yechezka. But so uh, we just have to hang on tight. And uh, go through the darkness first. There's dark. There's light at the end of the tunnel. I wish you all a great week. Thank you all for attending and listening. And uh, call to everybody. Thank you very much. Cool. Bye.